Hello, I'm Katie Derham. Welcome to Expect Better, a brand new podcast series from Coots, which looks at the uh, thrills and spills of life through a wealth lens. In this series, I'm talking to a range of great guests about their perspectives on topics like family, charity, philanthropy, and even those curveball life events like serious illness. We are trying to leave no stone unturned to bring you interesting conversation. And with that in mind, I'm delighted to introduce today's topic, which is responsible investing. To discuss this, I'm joined today by Suzanne Beagle, co-founder of Gender Smart, which describes itself as a global initiative dedicated to unlocking gender smart capital at scale. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Leslie Gent, who's Managing Director and Head of Responsible Investing at Coots. Both of you, welcome. Thank you. We have an icebreaker question each time we do these uh, podcasts. Ten words or less, both of you. What does wealth mean to you? Suzanne, do you want to kick us off? Yes, For me, wealth is fuel for equity, sustainability and resilience for people and planet. I like that. Equity for sustainability. I like that very much. Leslie, how would you answer that question? Well, I don't think mine's quite as eloquent, unfortunately. Um, And I was also challenged by the 10 words or less. But um, I thought about it and I came up with two words that for me um, exemplify wealth. And that's um, it's a privilege. Um, It's also a responsibility. And I think... Those two words came up probably from my experience with our clients and the seriousness with which they take the responsibility that they have with their wealth and their need to ensure that that wealth is serving its purpose, whether that's for the next generation or whether that's to to support a charity or an issue that uh, that they feel passionate about. Thank you. Thank you for that, Leslie and Suzanne. Uh, There is a huge range of topics which we could discuss today under the umbrella of responsible investing. But as I've already alluded, we're going to focus perhaps particularly on gender. And so, Suzanne, first of all, tell us a little bit more about Gender Smart and what it is that you do. So my focus and this field, which is a new field within investment, is about thinking about where gender, um, the patterns that men and women have, can be combined with a financial analysis to get to a better outcome. And that means looking at where women are in, and men are and gender non-binary are in the picture of any investment, from thinking about boards, management, product designers, employees, customers, even value chains, and asking yourself, does paying attention to gender help you see where there might be more risk in my investments or where there might be opportunity in my investments. And we're talking about not only what are we investing in, so we could be investing in products and services that are good for women. We could be talking about companies that are good for women. We could be talking about companies where it's about the extended value chain of that business. Um, But how we're investing in addition to what we're investing in and who is doing that investing. Gender Smart Investing Summit is the summit that I produce that's a platform to bring together investors who care about this, who are moving the field forward, and who are thinking, how can we use our capital to really promote diversity, equity, and inclusion while investing in a really smart way? And that really sums it up, doesn't it? Because for a lot of people listening, I'm sure there'll be very few people who would want to disagree with how much of this is a great idea, how important it is. But from an investment perspective, why does it become a smart choice? So we know that the research uh, tells us that gender balance in decision-making, whether it's in business, whether it's investment, um, has proven to be a source of outperformance. Um, We also know 
that all male teams or all female teams um, underperform relative to that, that, that level of gender balance. That's one. The second is that women um, who are close to the problems that they're trying to solve are often in a position to come up with the innovations and the solutions that are really going to be um, what other women are going to want to buy, but what everybody is going to need. We know that paying attention to women as employees and the dynamics that either promote that employment or keep women from being able to be employed well has an effect, massive effect on business and on society. And as the pandemic has really shown us, um, are often unseen and undervalued. Um, and in the investment world, you're always looking for where is there a pattern that might be unseen, underappreciated, undervalued, where I can come in um, and see a source of alpha, see a source of investment opportunity by paying attention to maybe other things that other people aren't seeing. And so how do you spot uh, a gender smart company? So I look at who is in the picture. So I might think about who's on the board, who's in the C-suite, who's in management, who's leading that company. I think about who's involved in product design and development. Do they understand the market that they're really addressing? I think about the kinds of products and services that they're offering and do they understand how men and women would use those products, would buy those products? Um, do they really understand? And we've seen, I want to say, Caroline Criado Perez is one of my favorite authors, speakers around this with Invisible Women. When you have PPE that doesn't fit, a woman, when you have drugs that haven't been tested on women as well as men and you don't know what the side effects are, when you have products and services that really aren't designed understanding the customer, um, you're missing out. And that's going to have an, a financial, material financial effect. So you're going to look at that. You're going to look at um, who are the better employers for women um, all the way out to their value chain. So uh, a multinational that's based here in the UK by producing with um, products and services from India or Africa? Are those good jobs um, that they're creating? Are those good relationships with their supply chain? And um, how are people thinking about how, again, they run the business, not just what it is that they're producing? So I look at all of those things. I also think from an, a fund management perspective, who is managing a fund? And we know that, unfortunately, women have been left out of asset management so significantly, despite the fact that women have been shown to outperform, whether it's in um, across asset classes, from public markets, private markets, even to hedge funds. Leslie, hearing that, this must be something that comes into your day-to-day -day assessment of investment opportunities and your work at Coots, but I'm assuming that it is just one aspect, of course, of, uh, of your work as uh, you know, head of responsible investment. Um, Tell us a little bit about your approach with clients when they're saying, listen, I want to invest in the good stuff. What do you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, first of all, I just want to go back and, and kind of add to what Suzanne has, has said because I couldn't agree more with some of the points that she's making. Um, as an investor, our primary goal is to ensure that we're delivering what we always call sort of risk return profile, right? It's sort of the basics of investing. But these other issues, these sort of environmental social governance issues, are also a driver of both risk and return. And so they need to be considered. And so for us, that's really what being a responsible investor is about, is making sure that we are holistically looking at 
all of the issues that could impact the value of a company. Gender is important, and I, I don't want to sort of put that to a, to, to, to a side. But for us, we sort of tend to look at what are our top points? What are the, the, the key issues that we want to address? Um, and for us, climate change is the top issue. And that's predominantly because we're a multi-asset investor. Uh, we invest across sectors, across countries. And climate change is relevant in all of those sectors and in all of those, those countries that we invest in. So it has to be our top issue. Um, so that is something that we've made um, commitments to. Um, we've set targets. And I think that's an important thing. And I kind of want to come back to that point around targets. But it has focused our vision right across asset management. By setting these targets, it has allowed us to determine, A, that we want to be measured on this point, and that we are determined to achieve these targets. So I'm talking about targets, I haven't said what they are, but, but for us, um, it's about reducing the carbon in our, in our portfolios. So we've set a, sh- a short-term target uh, to reduce that by 25% by the end of 2021. We are almost there. So you can see that focus really helps. People want to achieve, people want to outperform. And then longer term, we set um, a 50% reduction target by uh, end of 2030. And that's aligned with the Paris Agreement, or let's just call it climate science. But if we bring it back to gender, because that's really what the the focus here is, it is right um, that we're looking at these issues, whether, you know, diversity is bigger than just gender. And I think for us, we're looking at diversity more broadly. And and gender is one of those, those touching points. Um, a lot of the investments that we do are with other asset managers. So we invest in other funds to build our portfolios. So to Suzanne's point, one of the first questions we we ask or that we look at is that investment team and and is there diversity there? And often there isn't from a gender perspective and from other dimensions also. So it is less about um, ruling them out because the diversity doesn't exist today. It's about understanding what is their strategy? What is their plan to deliver that diversity? And do they really get it? Do they believe in it? Or is this just talk? So there's a lot of work around that that we're quite focused on when we're making our investment decisions. And is this a push or pull for Coots? Are you in trying to encourage your investors, your clients to come with you in, in this, this, this charge? Or has this been driven by them? It's both. Absolutely, it's both. So I would say within our client base, we have absolutely had, um, let's just call them the innovators, the pushers within our client base that are saying, Coots, you need to do more, you need to do better. And that has helped, right? I mean, at the end of the day, um, what we are delivering is something that our clients want to have. So having that feedback and hearing from our clients how important this is absolutely helps us deliver it. Um, But, you know, when we started down this path in earnest in, in 2016, it was, in a sense, us self-identifying how important this topic was. Um, and not just because we, we thought the demand would be there from a client perspective, but we genuinely think that from an investment perspective, it's the smart thing, it's the right thing to do. So responsible investment, but as we've already said, focusing particularly on diversity and within that focusing specifically on gender because of uh, having uh, Suzanne with us today. Suzanne, let's turn back to you. If you're a female entrepreneur in the UK, 
What is the environment like right now? For female entrepreneurs in the UK, less than 1% of venture capital goes to female entrepreneurs. And that's just a really stark number. And the Rose Review, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, and there's just been an update on it, demonstrated that if we invested in female entrepreneurs at the same level that we were investing in male entrepreneurs, it would bring at least 250 billion pounds to the UK economy of GDP. I mean, that's also a really stark number. So for an entrepreneur who's seeking capital today, it is disproportionately harder to get access to capital than for her male counterpart. And for investors, they don't see that there are literally a million women entrepreneurs out there that are looking for capital, that are that are building exciting, vibrant businesses. So one of the things that is uh, that's happening is that UK investors, institutional investors, and the cabinet office and the treasury are waking up and saying, we need to do something about this. And there's been a target set to invest in 600,000 more women entrepreneurs by the end of the decade. Um, and new funds, new vehicles, new pools of capital are coming forward uh, to really address this. Some of which are up and running already, like Ada Ventures and Vule Capital and um, funds that are uh, up and running and vibrant, um, but some of which have not been announced yet or that, that I think are cooking. So um, it's a really challenging time for a woman entrepreneur today, but maybe it's going to get better. Leslie, what have you got bubbling away at Coots? Yeah, so at Coots, um, we're uh, working with BGF to launch a fund called the UK Enterprise Fund. Hopefully that will be available towards the end of this year. Um, clearly, it's targeting um, entrepreneurs across the UK, basically providing them funding and support. But within that, um, it's also very focused on um, addressing equity gaps across the whole entrepreneurial ecosystem. So with specific initiatives and programs for female-led businesses and aimed at increasing the diversity um, across the management team also. So, you know, not just female-led, but also that the, that whole leadership team um, has that right sort of diversity profile. So, um, yeah, to Suzanne's point, um, we are absolutely supportive of the, the findings in the Rose Review. And this is one way that we believe that we can help support um, entrepreneurialism in the UK, but also female entrepreneurs. And anyone listening here who either is a, a Coots client who wants to get involved with that or is just listening and wants to just do their bit to try and uh, support diversity, what can they do? Um, always it's uh, contact your relationship manager. They will have um, information about this fund when it becomes available. It's not ready yet, uh, so patience, please. Um, but it is uh, scheduled uh, for the end of this year. And I'll say one other thing, which is an initiative called SHEEO, which started in Canada, now is Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand. The UK is the fifth country. And it is women investing in women in a radically generous way, being in a different kind of relationship. And I know that um, Coots and NetWestern RBS are very involved um, in that initiative. And um, if anybody wants to know about that, it's sheeo.world. Radically generous. We all need a bit of that, I think. Gender seems, there's no question, have become very much more uh, focused upon in the broader mainstream press and society generally this year and in recent years. Um, can you just sort of put a little bit of context for our listeners as to why it is so important for investors that they get to grips with these issues? 
Absolutely. And I do want to say that we're talking about gender, but there's a term called intersectionality, which is where you're really thinking about gender, race, class, ethnicity, the kind of intersection of those issues. And um, within Gender Lens Investing, there's quite a strong movement to say women, and in particular women of color, um, where are they in the picture? Because if all we're doing is lifting up white women in this picture, then we're, we're failing. Uh, so what's the history? What's the context here? People have been investing in women um, through microfinance for about 50 years. And so I think for a long time, people thought of, oh, invest in women, that must be something uh, really about uh, micro-entrepreneurs and emerging markets. Fast forward, now this is a, a broad, diverse, and deep um, field where we're talking all the way from microfinance to really thinking about billion-dollar companies that are led by women or that have products and services for women. Why has it come up so much in the last couple of years? Well, think about the Women's March. Think about Me Too and Time's Up. Think about um, the recognition about, again, even this year, how women are disproportionately affected in the pandemic. Um, and thinking about the care economy, thinking about the barriers um, that are coming up for women. Um, and thinking about women innovators. And I would say the media is doing a better job now of bringing to light women innovators, artists, scientists, technologists, people that are really solving the problems that we need to be solving. And so the final thing is that the massive intergenerational transfer of wealth that's happening amongst women and women coming into their power, either because they've made their money or because they've inherited it or married into it, realizing that they can actually have a voice in where their investment goes. And so all of those things have combined to increase the interest around this. Genderlines investing is not only for women, it's also men who are realizing that investing in women is smart. So I talk to just as many men as I do women who say, at this point, I'm looking at my own portfolio, it's the women entrepreneurs that are outperforming or it's the women fund managers that are really doing phenomenally well. I need to be paying more attention to this. And the context for an individual investor now, compared to when I started investing this way 20 years ago, is so much better. Because when I started, there was one public markets fund that had a gender lens mandate. There was maybe two venture capital funds and, you know, and a lot of microfinance that I could be in. Now, again, fast forward, you can invest across every asset class from real estate to venture capital to public markets to um, just literally anything you might want to invest in, including climate. So coming back to what Leslie's talking about, these things aren't in opposition. These things are, again, interconnected. And if you think about who are some of the most exciting innovators bringing solutions around climate change, it's women inventors and innovators and scientists. It's women CEOs and founders. It's women fund managers, by the way, who are leading some of the most exciting ESG funds. Um, and it is women workers who have just as much capability to be building solar panels or installing energy-efficient toilets as, as men are. And so if we're thinking about a just transition around climate, then you can also be thinking about, again, where gender and race and class and ethnicity all come together to say, what is the world that we want to be creating? And we must be thinking about gender and climate together. They can't be separated. Of course, people talking about how women are disproportionately negatively affected by climate change in emerging markets. And I think that's been the narrative. But I think the narrative that is um, told a little bit less that needs to be more seen is just the really exciting 
uh, women entrepreneurs and innovators that, that are there to be back, that are, that are really coming up with the solutions that we need. Where did your passion for this area come from, Suzanne? You, you said, you know, you, you've been running your own fund, your portfolio for 20 years. Before then, what, what, was, what was your story? I grew up in a family where, you know, this was just part of the, the water I drank, but I was a women entrepreneur myself. I built and sold a business um, with a visionary woman founder in the ed tech space. And when we sold the company in the late 90s and I had a portfolio to invest, it was just obvious to me that I was going to back other women entrepreneurs. Um, and it was uh, because I was in the tech space, that was sort of my, my orientation. But the more I learned about also the social issues that disproportionately affect women and the lack of attention that mainstream investing and the and again the venture capital space was paying attention to the products and services that women need, whether it was health or education or aging, or um, again in environmental sustainability, I thought this is a market opportunity for me to get in on, not just because it aligns with my values, but because it's I'm going to spot innovators that maybe other people aren't going to spot as quickly. I started this really after I sold my business, uh, but then I, and I started it really thinking this would just be something I would do while I was doing something else. And then I became honestly quite obsessed about the fact that the rest of the world needs to see how vibrant and essential and exciting this this whole field is. You you make it sound so completely obvious. I mean, Leslie, has it taken quite a while for uh, everybody else to catch up? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this this has been a bit of a slow burn, if, if, if I put it that way. Um, but, you know, again, I agree entirely with everything that, that, that Suzanne is saying. Um, what's interesting for me, again, being part of the asset management industry, um, which again, very male dominated, and I sort of grew up in that space, but also seeing um, the, the women step up to the table when it comes to sustainable, responsible, or ESG. Um, it is absolutely being led by women. And that's a fabulous thing to see that, um, not that there are women involved, but they are leading in the space. So not just in the entrepreneurial space, but actually in the asset management space. So that helps, right? It helps that there are women that are looking at these issues, women that are driving the agenda. So, so that's, um, that's a very exciting space to be in. Um, but again, just bringing gender back um, to sort of coots and the way that, that, that we invest, it is a really important topic. Um, this, this equality point and um, the idea that you need to have um, proper representation right across um, the, the sort of the company, not just at board level, not just at the C-suite, but coming up, you know, through the ranks. And it's more than just the numbers, right? It's, it's that kind of environment that fosters um, growth and, and opportunity um, for a diverse workforce. So those are the sorts of things that we're completely focused on. Um, the problem, and, and let's let's be honest, this isn't all easy, and I'm, I'm keen to hear what Suzanne says as an investor, but um, the data behind this is sometimes difficult to find. Um, we're seeing a lot of um, sort of regulation and, and sort of encouragement, voluntary sort of disclosure around this, um, but it really helps as an investor that you have tangible data that's been audited 
that you can use to make decisions. Um, and that's really important with sort of a scale business like ours, where, you know, we're investing globally across hundreds of companies. It's hard to be sort of in depth and do that really good work, that good sort of qualitative research. Um, the data helps us and accelerates that effort. So for us, that's still one of the biggest challenges in this space is, is the quality of the data. And, you know, our reliance on making decisions based on what we would call imperfect data. I mean, if you have built up a picture of a company and then discover that actually it wasn't accurate, what can you then do as Coots? Yeah, so I mean, again, this this sort of engagement work or the stewardship uh, work that we do once we're invested is such a huge driver of change, right? So by engaging at the board level on issues that are absolutely critical to the success, the long-term success of that company, really drives uh, change. And we've seen um, so many examples. I mean, I think what's great is um, the the engagement work that we do is supported by um, EOS at Federated Hermes. So they're a partner of ours and um, they play a global role in this. And the the outcome of that engagement, it isn't immediate. I mean, I think that's kind of the downside of all of this. And certainly when we talk about gender diversity, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I know, uh, you know, Pfizer is a, is a point to note that, you know, in 2018, the conversation started, you know, your board diversity isn't, it doesn't look great. You've got 17% uh, women on the board. What are you going to do about and This is it? the big uh, pharmaceutical company, yeah? Yeah. Absolutely, in the US. Um, and that really took two years. So it was really uh, early this year that two additional women were appointed to the board. So it takes persistence. Uh, you do need to be patient. It isn't going to happen overnight. Um, but it is, I think, somewhat disappointing, you know, when a company says it's a strategic priority and it takes two years. You have to wonder how, how high that is on the priority list. Um, so, that, so that's important that you're persistent, that you're having those conversations, that the board is reacting to it and actually delivering results. But patience uh, is part of the, the, the ingredient list, I guess. And do you sometimes hold a big stick over the, 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 the company and say, well, we're going to pull our investment if you don't smarten up? Yeah, and I think that has to be there. Um, you're not credible if the in a sense, as you say, the threat isn't there, that the assets go. And, and that's that's sort of, again, being sensible about how you allocate your capital. Um, we do have opportunities. There, there are other places that it can be allocated to. Um, I would say our first port of call is not to divest. I, I genuinely believe that having that conversation with the company and getting the company to understand maybe some of their weaknesses will actually be a bigger impact, uh, have a bigger impact and deliver greater change than just selling your shares to someone who may not care. So we do try, but ultimately, if the company doesn't respond or isn't aligned with your vision, then you do need to, to actually divest. Suzanne, coming back to you. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you, you were going to say, Suzanne. Well, I just want to say that there are multiple philosophies about how to approach investing in this way, right? You can say, I want to go for the best actors and get my capital there. You can say, I want to go for the second best actors and really engage and work with them and know that it might take time. But that combination of patience and persistence 
and the voice of shareholders, the voice of the asset managers, the voice of consumers all coming together, and in some cases, public policy and the regulatory side coming together to really make that change is what's necessary. There are people who can say, and I mean, you have a portfolio, right? So you can use different parts of your portfolio to achieve different goals. So I have a part of my portfolio where I'm going to back visionary women entrepreneurs, where I don't have to wait for them to change. They're already there. They're already 10 steps ahead. I'm just giving them fuel. Um, but I've got other parts of my portfolio where on the public market side, uh, I'm going to go for the better actors and other parts where I think the asset manager, the, the coots the, or the fund manager um, is going to be pushing in the boardroom and using that big stick. And especially if they represent trillions of dollars of capital, let's, let's face it, I look at my capital in context of how much bigger a voice do I have uh, when I'm with a, a large asset manager. Um, and um, it's gonna, we, we need it all. We need, it, it all has to be there. And I think sometimes it's okay to be patient and sometimes really it's much better to say, um, you don't have it together. I'm gonna take my capital somewhere else. And I do think the regulatory side, that, you know, what's the role of, the, of, uh, of regulation? People didn't believe that we could get environmental data 20 years ago. And I'm also a, a, an environmentalist from way back. My, my portfolio is about climate and gender um, and social equity. Um, I remember when people said, oh, there's no way that you could talk about the carbon footprint for a company or the water footprint for a company. And then lo and behold, people like Carbon Disclosure Project and others came along. And now we have, we have huge amounts of data on the, on the climate side. Right On the gender side, we haven't had as much of a push, but we have things like the Modern Slavery Act. We have things like the Pay Gap um, Act here in the UK, which is you know, globally something that people are following. And people said, oh, you'd never be able to get that data. Uh, people have said, oh, you'll never be able to get supply chain data. So big companies, but big companies like P&G are leading initiatives around understanding where women are in their supply chain. They spend $5 billion a year on marketing. $5 billion a year. They're now going out to really understand where women are in their marketing spend, not just the women that they're targeting, but who are they doing business with? Who's producing the jingles on their ads, who's producing the photography and the television commercials and the digital media. Um, and they're asking those questions as other companies are to say, we've got to do better. Give us a little bit of a break because um, we're just starting. Um, and people like me are very impatient, but also uh, excited by, by that kind of movement. Um, and I think the investor role has a really key role to play. But you can also say that with a part of your portfolio, you're going to go straight for the woman innovator who's coming up with a waterless toilet, uh, or which is called Luat here in the UK, um, or the amazing jewelry company that's doing everything from upcycled materials and producing in um, informal settlements in Kibera in Nairobi called Soko or you're gonna look at a company that's doing um, the most groundbreaking work around the care economy, uh, like care.com or care academy, all women-led businesses that are really solving problems and innovating solutions that we need today. So you can, you can do both. I mean, at board level, where do you think we've got to and how much further have we got to go? So we were making some good progress here in the UK uh, and we, with the 30% uh, initiative and others and, I'm going to say it stalled. 
I mean, it's really, and I mean, Leslie, maybe you're you're closer to this than I am. I, I tend to look less at board issues and more about um, other aspects of the business. But I feel like there's been moments where there have been these big pushes. Progress has been made. And then people think, oh, I'm tired of that. I'm moving on to the next initiative or job done. And so we are we are not at the level of uh, board diversity that we need to be either in the UK or anywhere. And what's really good is that some of the, again, big asset managers are saying, I'm going to vote against all male boards, but you need at least 30% of women on a board to make a difference. And it's not just about the numbers, as Leslie said, it's about what is their role on the board? What what specific roles do they have? Um, and what's their voice and agency? I don't know, Leslie, if you want to add in more about the, the board side. Yes, yes, Leslie, it would be great to hear from you because there is that sort of slight tendency that people, that when you've got women on the board, it's HR and marketing often, isn't it? You know, uh, traditionally. Yeah, so, so it is right. I mean, it has stalled and it's almost like there's a fatigue with this issue. Um, I think there was a PwC report in the US where, again, the questions were addressed to board members and it was almost as if the, the, the directors were saying, well, that you know, we dealt with that issue. Um, and it isn't good enough. I'm sorry, uh, you know, setting the, the I think it was a 33% target in the UK, that's a nice target, but it's not 50%. And, you know, that really should be the, the, the goal that we're, we're, we're aiming to achieve. Um, so it is, I think, slowing, but asset managers have the responsibility to persist um, with this topic and to continue to seek the right type of diversity at board level. Again, it's bigger than just gender, obviously, but but that's probably the most obvious one. and not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the smart thing to it do. Is, and absolutely. I think that's the key is just because we have the data now about board diversity and better decision making. And we also know that the board level's essential, but it's not everything. I also think that on the people will say, oh, there's not enough pipeline of, of good board members. I'm on the advisory board for something called the Boardroom Africa, which is um, about getting more women onto public company boards, private company boards, investment committees, and fund management boards uh, in on the continent. And um, we started this initiative a couple of years ago. It's it's vibrant in Africa now, and it is. Um, we have a roster of over 500 qualified women board members, um, and they're getting onto the boards of banks, big companies, venture capital funds. Um, and people can no longer say, oh, there's no pipeline. There's nobody there. But I do also want to emphasize, you know, the board is essential, but it's not enough. We've got to really be looking across everything a business is doing. Um, and governance matters more than anything else, but we've got to be looking at these other factors. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was just going to add, um, I think what you see in organizations is great diversity at that sort of entry level, right? And, and, you know, if you think of your own career, you know, when I look back at my career, I didn't even think about gender as being an issue when I started because I looked around and there were as many women as there were men. And it's only as you sort of progress um, and become more senior in an organization that that you realize something is going wrong here. We're losing women. And, And that's kind of the way I think about it is there's something that is, that is sort of driving women away potentially. So it's not the right environment. It's not encouraging. It's not fostering. 
Um, and, and it's those are the issues that really need to be addressed is how do we retain female talent? When we talk about gender smart investing, Suzanne, um, how do those who are non-binary factor into your thoughts at the moment? So gender is obviously a social construct um, and LGBTQIA um, uh, non-binary uh, awareness has grown so much in the last couple of years. Um, I am really excited to see that there are asset managers and asset owners who are also looking at where are women, um, men, and uh this much more diverse population represented in investment, both, again, driving capital. So who, where are people in investment decision-making roles, but also where are the investment funds that allow you to prioritize on companies that are good for um, leadership, employment, pro even products and services that are targeting um, a much more diverse um, audience. And so that's a, that's a subfield, I would say, um, or its own kind of niche within gender smart investing. How about timeframes, both of you? I mean, Leslie, can you envisage a time when gender bias won't be an issue in your work? Um, I have to say yes. Um, I have to remain optimistic on this point. So um, everything that I see um, is makes me think it's going to happen, right? But it, it's like anything that you can't change overnight you have to be patient, you have to be persistent, and you have to continue to insist that you've got the right sort of ingredients to make this happen. Um, so, so I think the answer has to be yes. There's no reason why it should be different. And Suzanne, I guess I'm preaching to the choir with you. You must believe that that's your target. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing the work you're doing. <laughs> that is absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely the target. If, I, if you'd asked me 20 years ago if we would be if we would have made such little progress by now, I would have said no. I have to say, I thought this would all be solved within five or 10 years when I started this 20 years ago. However, we've made huge progress. I mean, the sheer numbers, the billions of dollars that are moving in this direction, the, I mean, at the summit that I run, we had $14 trillion of capital represented at our last event. Um, we have hundreds of institutional investors, family offices, foundations, high net worth individuals, fund managers, all coming together um, to say that this is real and this is material and this is an opportunity. Um, but compared to $70 trillion of global market cap, we're still very nascent. And do I, do I foresee a day when this is a non-issue? Absolutely, when this is just considered smart investing and this is just, and all, by the way, values-led, sustainable, responsible investing is the norm. And you have to talk about um, investing that is not in this direction rather than that is. Um, but I think we're I think we're probably farther off than I wish, I think that any of us wish we were. We have a lot of work to do. And on the other side, um, there's so much that people can do now as individual asset owners, as asset managers, um, as whether you have, uh, you know, $500 or you have $5 million or $50 million, whether you have, um, as my friend Tracy Gray, who's an uh, African-American fund manager in the U.S., um, says, whether you have a piggy bank or you own a bank, <laughs> everyone can be a gender lens investor. 
um, and can realize that uh, you don't have to you don't have to um, wait to be able to do this. This is something you can do right now, and this is something all of us can do from wherever we sit to play a role. Leslie, hearing that and having had this fascinating discussion focusing on gender, but obviously. And, and, and agreeing that that cuts across all the different elements of your work, Leslie, what, how would you sum up what your ultimate goals are for the work that you're doing as a responsible investor? I mean, ultimately, um, it, again, if I keep it to 10 words, it, it's about driving change, um, positive change. That's my role. I mean, that's generally how I see what I'm doing is, is whether that's internally within our asset management team, getting them sort of to, to, to identify the benefits of this approach, whether that's working with colleagues in the industry, um, whether that's helping to influence um, regulation, it's about change. Um, so, you know, I'm passionate about it um, and I want to see it happen. So uh, I'm just delighted to be part of it. That is a great way to end this discussion. Both of you, thank you so much. Leslie Gent from Coot, Suzanne Beagle from GenderSmart. It's been a great chat. And I know we we build it as an umbrella discussion about responsible investment. It has been that, but so interesting to really get down deep into the detail of the gender debate. Thank you both so much. Thank you to both my guests for such an interesting discussion. Lots to think about after that. Suzanne Beagle, co-founder of GenderSmart. Leslie Gent, head of Responsible Investing at Coots. And thank you for listening to Expect Better. We'd love you to rate and review the podcast. Please do subscribe to hear more about navigating life through a wealth lens. More information on banking, financial planning and investments can be found at the Coots.com website. And you can also email investmentqueries at Coots.com. Do join us next time for the penultimate episode in this series. We're going to be looking at how to make work work for you with entrepreneur Sat Verk. If you want to do business because you want a Ferrari, then I'd tell you you're going to be disappointed. You just are. You've got a much better chance of finding something like you like doing day to day. You will be more fulfilled than if you get into a Lamborghini. Because I've got into a Lamborghini, it was all right. He's got a great story to tell, so don't miss that.